Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today I am joined by golf course architect Gil Hans. This is another two-part podcast. Part two will be available on Tuesday night. Without further ado, here's Gil Hans. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. I'm wondering, your noted deadhead, how's music had a impact on your career? Yeah, I think, I mean, when you're in a machine, you, you're you're basically focusing on what you're building. And and I'm uh, I've always loved music. I've my first dead show was at Madison Square Garden in 1979. I was 15 years old, so it was one of those things. You know, when you kind of get turned on to that that scene and that vibe and that music and it it just I've always enjoyed it I don't have a musical bone in my body I couldn't play an instrument or carry a tune to save my life but I just have always enjoyed music and I think that that sort of jam band I mean I love Dave Matthews Uh, I never got into fish I think you know being a deadhead it was just that was sort of I don't know you look at it as a younger version of what we were going through so um but I think that that improvisation and just that kind of one guy riffing off the next guy and another guy picks it up and they go and it's just the music, the creativity, the just the sort of how it all comes together when it's not scripted. I, I really enjoy that. And I think that that's somewhat of a metaphor for how we work. I mean, a lot, all of our guys, we just spend time editing and refining each other's work and, and trying to make things better. And so there's a contribution that, you know, I generally set sort of the bigger scale and the stage for um, depth and scale of bunkers and greens. And then Jim will come along, Jim Wagner, my partner, and he'll start monkeying with an excavator or it's one of our other, one of the cavemen will get involved. And then it, we, we call it the theory of ever decreasing implements where we start off big scale, go to a mini X, and then eventually wind up with rakes and shovels. And so I think that there you know, just that feeling of, of creativity that just sort of, you know, things that, that flow out of the moment. Um, that's that's part of what I love about that kind of music. And, and that's also something I think that, that corresponds with our work. It's kind of like the big stuff is the common theme that run through a song. And then it's all the little iterations and the layers. And like I think about like, you know, like Stairway to Heaven, like how they, they starts with that one, the you know, yeah. the, everybody knows. And then it, it just like through the song keeps building on and then you, you get to the crescendo and it's got every little piece of it. It does. And it's, you know, and like a band, there's, you know, lead singer, lead guitarist. And so I get a, a ton of the credit for the stuff, but it, trust me, I mean, it is a team effort. It's all of our guys pitching in and it's, it's the different, um, you know, we're all different sort of levels of players and we're all have come to the game in different ways. And there's just, um, everybody adds every step along the way. And, and so it's one of those things that from a collaborative standpoint, I've always found myself to be a very collaborative person. And, and I, I don't feel like 
I have all the best ideas. I think that, you know, there, there's, there are concepts and ideas and thoughts and principles that I think are flow throughout our work, but it's that sort of spontaneous nature of what happens in the field. And that, that's something I learned from Tom Doak working for him. And that's something he learned from Pete Dye and obviously Bill and Ben, they work in a similar fashion, but it's that spontaneity. It's that uh, field decisions. It's the reaction to where the sun sets, how the wind blows, what a tree looks like, what the background is, and just sort of knowing and feeling and being on site that ultimately lends itself, provides those intricacies like you talked about that, that ultimately gives the work its own special feel and, and which would give a music or a song its own special feel. But it gets back to that, you know, there's always the bass and the drums laying the, the groundwork for it. And we always feel like we have that, that groundwork flows consistently from one project to the other, but it's, you know, those, uh, those solos that Jerry Garcia used to take off and go wherever and hopefully great places. That's, that's what we, we feel like each individual project gets. And, and interestingly enough, you know, it takes a, a special owner to trust you to do that because, you know, it could be described as you're winging it or you're just making it up as you go. And yes, there's an element to that. And so, you know, as you build your career, you get to a point where you get more and more trust and, and you earn more and more trust and respect. And we're fortunately now at that point where we get a lot of owners who are excited about what we're doing and they trust and they've seen, you know, there's, there's, um, there's a track record for what we've been able to accomplish. And I think, you know, Bill and Ben are at the, the peak of that. I mean, the, this, what they come up with time in and time out they've built that trust in that respect. Tom Doak has done the same thing. And I, you know, we're excited. We kind of feel like we've gotten to that point where, where we're allowed to take chances, uh, when we're out in the field and, and hopefully the chances that we take, you know, generally are, are well received. Um, so when you're out working, do you listen to music? I do. Definitely. It would be boring otherwise. <laughs> You know, some of our guys listen to podcasts and they listen yeah. to conversations or, you know, they're always talking about, well, I was listening to this, uh, you know, economist from Prague and he was saying why this. And I'm like, all right, that's great. I, I appreciate that you're educated and, and smarter on things like that than I am. But I just can't I can't focus and listen to something like that and also feel like I'm being as creative and, and focused on what I'm actually building. I'm not saying it can't be done. It certainly can be, but I've just always felt like music sets that tone for me. It's kind of background. It can inspire what I'm doing. And certainly like if I'm listening to Rage Against the Machine, it's probably going to be a little bit heavier duty stuff. Or if I'm listening to James Taylor, it might be a little bit more mellow, but there's just that, um, I think as a backdrop for what I'm doing, I just find that music is the best. Now, when the Eagles were making the Super Bowl run, I have I was listening to the you know Philadelphia sports talk radio, which is pretty much mindless when you when you listen to sports talk radio, but it's fun, so it's not something I have to really focus on. But yeah, I think it's it's been something that um, you know when I look back at the sort of the implements that we used and, and going from a Walkman to uh, you know with the big bulky earphones that don't really fit over your ears, and then eventually you know you get to an iPad, it's like oh my god, I've, I can choose my own music or you listen to the radio and now you get to the point with with pandora and spotify and you know, your own playlists or own music or there's a great if you're a dead fan there's a great app called re-listen and it's got all shows on it and it's got fish shows and dead and company 
So there's so many options out there now to listen to music that uh, I certainly take advantage of that. Yeah, the on-demand uh, nature. I, it's fine. I, I can't listen to podcasts and write at the same time. Like, yeah. I just don't listen to the podcast. I don't retain none of the info. <laughs> but, you know, if I listen to music, I I don't think I, I... I'll have to see if I different music does different stuff. But um, so I look at your schedule and I think he might be the busiest man in golf. What's what's it like? Um, it, it, it's busy. It's, um, you know, I just came back from an 11 day trip to Australia and, uh, Bangkok and then Tokyo. So three different projects at different stages, Royal Sydney, we're still in the planning and trying to put together a master plan to take to the membership, hopefully for a significant overhaul of the course. Um, Bangkok, we're building a brand new golf course that's inspired by the Lido. Um, it's not an app perfect replica of it, but the sequence of holes is the same and we're excited. I've always loved the, you know, the restoration work we've done, uh, for McDonald and Rainer. So this is kind of a fun project on a not very fun site, really heavy soil and, and very flat, but I've got some guys over there. We're knocking it into shape, which is pretty cool. And then Tokyo golf club, which is a renovation slash restoration of an existing golf course. Um, we, you know, not a lot of people know, but Japan traditionally had two sets of greens per hole. And long time ago, it was all for agronomic reasons. It was bent grass for the winter and Bermuda grass for the summer. But that fell by the wayside. But Tokyo Golf Club has retained both greens. So we rebuilt one set of greens eight or nine years ago. And now we're redoing the second set of greens. And we're redoing fairway bunkers starting this summer. So it's basically a complete overhaul of Tokyo Golf Club principally a restoration but since it wasn't originally built with two greens it's not quite a pure restoration so yeah you get that sort of travel then you get to come home to pinehurst and work on this so we're you know i I just look at it as we're really fortunate we're getting to go to great places and be involved in great stuff and so there's no i would never think to complain about being as busy as we are i think you know with jim wagner my partner we just keep our heads down and try and keep focused and kind of keep moving, moving forward. The, the two green thing, you did the double green at stream song black. And I read after that, that double greens are used to be like a real thing. And you know, when you're talking about variety for a hole, how you could completely shake it up. Like, you know, one thing could be moving a pin from one side of a green to the next, but like a whole different ball game when you got two greens. It, it is. And it's pretty cool because, you know, now that um, we've been able to touch all 36 greens, we, we're, we were challenged. And I'll just be honest about that. It's hard to f- come up with 36 original ideas with fairly small greens because they can't be huge because of the amount of space that they have. But I think uh, Neil Cameron uh, from Barora, Scotland, is our associate living and working over there. And I think between Neil and I, we were able to come up with some pretty good ideas. And, and you're right. Now, you correspond that to the strategies and different ways to play it. And one of the cooler aspects is, is that the par threes all have not only two greens per hole, but two tees. So you, they crisscross. So you'd play one green from one angle and one from the other. So they're basically brand completely you know, all new holes from T to green. So as a member, I think it would be pretty neat to be able to show up and just be able to play, you know, you're never not sure which course you're going to be playing on or which combination of greens. And I think that that would, would hold a lot of interest. Is there, is there like a innovative design that you'd want to do like a new design that would be 
different than the standard 18 holes. I was reading an article, I think, in Golfer's Journal about uh, Shiskin over in Scotland and about the 12-hole golf course. And I think, you know, the just kind of how it came back to the clubhouse after 12. And I think that would be cool to to work on a 12-hole course just from a timing perspective because, you know, we've all, ta- we've all heard the stories about why golf is either not growing or is failed, uh, doomed to fail in the future and, and, you know, the time it takes to play. So I think 12-hole golf course would be you could find an owner who would back that. That'd be pretty cool. It would be cool. I always say that in like, I live in the city of Chicago. Like if I go leave the city, it takes forever. And then obviously you have no land in the city, but if somebody built like a four hole course that you, that you could play four holes in an hour and instead of going to the gym, you play four holes, that would be, that would probably work. But yeah. you have to, I mean, time is, is a, seems like it's getting less and less with technology now so um when uh did you kind of figure out that you wanted to be an architect uh i was uh, i was late in coming to the party i um it was really just sort of i mean a lot of luck and just i don't know sometimes you believe in fate if you do this was probably just meant to be it was um i was introduced to the game by my grandfather loved him dearly and he I mean I idolized him and so from the standpoint of him um, putting a golf club in my hands the time I got to spend with him on a golf course was always just wonderful and so I don't know if there was something magical about that environment or the golf course it was an old uh, Tillinghast golf course on Long Island called Southward Ho so it was well designed and and a really neat but short track Um, and so I then I started doodling golf holes but he was a politician so I then went to the University of Denver and studied political science and history, which is, you know, one of these great things, which I'm interested in both of them, but now what do you do? And so I didn't have a job offer out of school, so I went to grad school. So you either go to grad school or law school if you're a poli-sci history major. So grad school at Cornell, studying city and regional planning, still doodling golf holes. And my first semester at Cornell, I took a landscape architecture class, and I met a gentleman who was taking it, whose name was Tom Griswold, he was studying to be a golf course architect. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah, we can do this here. And the faculty's supportive of it and the whole deal. And he subsequently went on to work for Tom Fazio for 20 plus years. And um, I went home that night and I just said to Tracy, I said, this is it. I actually, you can do this. And I, I want to switch into landscape architecture. Switched over. Uh, first summer worked maintenance on the country club of Ithaca. Second summer worked at uh, high point for Tom Doke on his construction crew, picking rocks and digging ditches and doing anything I possibly could. And eventually by the end of the summer, he threw me on a bulldozer for two days, which was awesome and really just kind of kept the bug going. And then uh, I won a scholarship to spend a year in great Britain, the Dreer award, which Tom had won, uh, previous to me at Cornell and came back and, finished up then went to work for Tom. So it was this circuitous path to get there. I'm delighted I did. But oddly enough, when I was a senior at DU, um, I interned for a congressman and he didn't have a position for me. So first semester at Cornell, just flipped the switch, made the decision to go into become a golf course or study to be a golf course architect. Within a week, he calls me and he says, I've got a job for you in Washington if you want it. And Thank God I said no. I mean, who knows where I'd be right now, but it was, uh, you know, it was just one of those decisions in life. Now you look back and you say, thank God, you know, I made the the right one. 
it's, it's funny how life works out that that kind of stuff happens all the time it's, yeah i mean it tested it made you really decide and jump all i mean jump all in there's no in or out probably um the dreer award you get to spend what three months in great a year a year in great britain yeah um so which courses had the most influence yeah so we we did it a little bit differently so tracy was with me um and we were we spent six months outside of st andrews uh, rented a house and then used that as home base to move around Scotland and then six months in uh, Woodstock outside of Oxford because I interned for Hawtrey and Son and helped Mr. Hawtrey do the research for his book, uh, Colt and Company, mm-hmm. which allowed me to see a bunch of Harry Colt courses, which was great. So from that standpoint, it was just looking, you know, kind of day trips in and out and a, and a few longer excursions. But I think the the courses that influenced me the most were the ones that were the quirkiest, uh, you know, the North Barracks, the Cruden Bays, the Prestwicks, because I, they showed me uh, sort of the boundaries of where golf architecture could go, how far you could stretch it, that yes, it was acceptable to build a, a green with a wall running directly in front of it that you had to play over the top of, that, you know, blind holes were okay and, and that, um, you know, trying to utilize and route a golf course through the the most wonderful golfing terrain is an exercise not only in finding the best golf holes, but finding the best pattern and not using up all the best ground at a certain point and going, you know, back and forth to the sea, et cetera. So I think that those golf courses in particular provided that, that type of uh, window into, you know, ultimately what, we talked about earlier the spontaneity, the creativity of where you might ultimately go with golf course architecture. And Tom Doak was a great proponent of that, of seeing those golf courses. And, you know, he gave me a great list of courses to go and look at that were sort of off the beaten paths, the boats of garden, you know, the, the broras, et cetera. And I think that while you, you take a ton away from all the usual suspects and, as, you know, impro- appropriately so, it was these ones that, you know, you maybe you'd only see one really distinguishing design characteristic, but it would be something that would always lock away in your mind for future reference or for at some level, you know, saying, Hey, it's okay to try and push that button and, and try and, and stretch the boundaries a little bit as long as, it, as long as it feels like it fits into the context of the landscape you're working with. So those were, I think some of the best lessons. Speaking of that, like how much do you feel your extensive restoration work helps your new build. I think it helps us a ton because it's, it's an opportunity for us to really study what Tillinghast did it at winged foot, what Thomas did at LA North, what, you know, Ross did at Plainfield or Aronimink. Um, it gives us the opportunity to, to really dive into their thought process. And and I say that in a specific, you know, you mentioned specific golf courses, because I think that's the only way you can do it. I've never been a fan of, of the use of the word typical as it relates to golf course architects as well. Ross typically built greens like Pinehurst number two. Well, no, he didn't actually. Um, well, Ross typically built grass face bunkers. Well, that's not necessarily true. Or Tillinghast did this or that. And I think it's, you need to find out specifically what did they do at that golf course that you're, you're restoring. And, you know, I mentioned history being one of my majors. Well, that 
you know, that research and the interest and the thought of, of being involved and, and, and really dredging up and trying to find that information has always been a fascinating part of what we do. So armed with that knowledge, we can then go and, and hopefully do the right thing by that golf course, by the way it looks and the way it fits and, and, and put it back to their original design. But then we can also borrow or steal ideas that we liked and then throw away things that we didn't like. I think it's, it always is helpful from a learning perspective to be exposed to other people's thoughts and principles. You can ultimately choose to accept or reject those, but to not necessarily think about them, whether that's politics, life, anything, I just think that would be a bad way to go through, through life. And I, so we've, we've always thought if we can work on a design it will help us to be a work on somebody else's design. It will help us to be a better golf course architect. I know that personally the work that we did at, at Los Angeles country club on the North course, working with Jeff Shackelford and, and Jim and I has had a profound impact on me as a golf course architect. I'm a much, much better golf course architect by being able to study what George Thomas did. I mean, that guy was a genius. What he was thinking about back then and what, how he applied it to LACC I mean, talk about a mad scientist and having sort of a great laboratory for an experiment, but everything he tried was brilliant. It was audacious. It was exciting. And and to look at that and then go from there right to Rio to the Olympic course and just chock full of courses within a course and different angles and different thoughts and, and set up um, and the utilization of natural features as hazards. I mean, that was really very impactful on what we, what we do. So I think we're hopeful that every time we approach one of these projects, we do so with a mindset of, listen, it's not our work. It's, it's their work. Let's make sure we work hard to get the details right. Because I think that's one of the things that can be missing in, in this day and age, as it relates to restoration of golf courses is the Remember, they worked with shovels and rakes and mules and scrapers, and we try to do everything now with bigger pieces of equipment, and we can't ever lose sight of the fact that we've got to finish all of their work by hand. We can't finish it with machines. And I think that getting those details right is just as important as finding an old bunker on an aerial photograph and making sure we put it back in the right scale, right size. But how we finish it, is just as important, if not more important, than getting it in the right place. Restoration's like a big buzzword right now. When is it right to restore versus renovate? We've always looked at it as um, <clears throat> restoration is when the project is principally based on the design of an original architect, and the, the goal is to keep the focus and the philosophy on that renovation is when we feel like we can put our fingers on it and kind of make manipulate, make changes or the golf course has been changed so significantly from the original design that, um, and if you can't put it back, then you feel like it's more of a renovation. I'm a generally a proponent of any time a golf course is, is, was designed and built by one of the recognized great golf course architects that should always be first and foremost a restoration. I just think that, you know, we value the works of like a Frank Lloyd Wright or a Le Corbusier or, you know, all these greats of design. Why shouldn't we pay the same 
attention to an Alistair McKenzie or a Charles Blair McDonald. Why shouldn't I think it's it's really ballsy and, and arrogant for any current modern golf course architect to feel like they can improve on that. Why would you even need to? I mean, that's what our own work is for, is try and go out and prove that we can build something com- com- comparable, compatible. But to feel like we should put our fingerprints all over something that was done by one of the best who ever practiced, um, and then to remove that from the face of the earth in theory forever, I just don't understand how anybody could walk into a project and just feel comfortable doing that. It just... It doesn't make any sense. Now, that could be, you know, people could say, well, I'm being somewhat you know, qualitative as who am I to decide whether, you know, a, a Seth Rayner course is more important than a course designed by, you know, some no-name architect or some guy, you know, who built one or two golf courses. And, you know, that, there's an argument that can be made for that. We we just look at it and we're fortunate enough now to be working on courses that were designed by these these top guys as as that it's really, really important for us to focus first and foremost on what they did. And, you know, where you go off script a little bit is if you can figure out that, okay, the thought process for the golf hole was this, and, and there's a bunker that they placed at 180 yards, and it just doesn't work for the modern game anymore. So do you leave that in place and then add a second one further down, you know, so that it challenges the current player that that bunker was intended, or do you take it out and then add the other one in the same shape or form as long as the topography will support putting it in a new location? Those are the difficult questions, I think, that, um, and I don't feel like that's bastardizing or destroying or taking away the work of somebody else as long as we're careful again in getting the details right and in making it look and feel as if it could have been there forever. So it's not as simple as always saying, well, here's the aerial photograph and here's the topo map or here's the plan of such and such and let's put it back exactly the same because you you maintain golf courses differently from when they were de- when that guy designed it and they, you play the golf course differently. So I think it's important to factor all of those things into the evolution of the course yet still stay as true as possible to that original design. So it's it's not maybe not as cut and dried as I'd like for it to be. And I would say if you're going to err on one side, you always err on the side of protecting and preserving what that what that person built. Yeah, it's it's tough because they, the courses were designed for like the high level player back then and the bunker a lot of the bunkers are and now it's kind of interesting how it's changed to where those places are where like the regular guy hits it now a lot of times. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, it was intended to be for the longer guy. So you know, we, we talk an awful lot about, okay, you know, let's not clutter up the landscape. Let's not, you know, let's not take, leave the bunker at 220 and then add another one at 300 or add another one at 260 and then another one at 300. I just don't think that that sort of multiplication works. It just doesn't feel right in the landscape. So you're really focused on which if you're going to add, let's just add one. Let's not really try and, and overdo or overpower the landscape. Now that we're talking about golden age greats, who's your Mount Rushmore of golf course architecture? Wow. Um, I would say it's McKenzie, certainly. Uh, Tillinghast, 
McDonald and Rainer count as one, or are they they two? I don't know. <laughs> put them together. <laughs> okay, uh, put them together. Uh, the two headed monster, and then uh, George Thomas. Yeah, I think that those guys all they ran the gamut for. They were creative. They were innovative. They were geniuses. Um, you know, McDonald and Rainer obviously had the same template over and over again, but the way they discovered those golf holes in different landscapes and different settings, I think qualified them to be geniuses as far as, you know, even though they're replicating a, a somewhat formulaic, that formula I think is proven to be a of high quality and b of incredible fun, you know, to play that you never get, I, I've never heard a single person in my life say, Oh, I played a Rainer course or a McDonald course. and I had a bad time. The other thing is like a lot of the, a lot of great holes on Rainer and McDonald courses aren't template holes where they allowed the land to just do its thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, then that showed some of their, their creativity and their, their flexibility and in, in finding, not only finding the right places for the templates, but finding good golf holes as well. Uh, Mackenzie, I think was probably the first architect to really get the whole, his combination of strategy, um, with beauty in the landscape, I think was far superior to anybody else who practiced in his time frame. He really, he got the whole package. He built interesting, strategic, creative holes to play, but they were just amazing to look at as well. And he just plugged them into the landscape better than, than anybody. And Tillinghast, I think was, um, really, in, you know, just, a chameleon almost. I mean, his courses changed, you know, the looks and the presentations and, and the way he set things up, but there were always just really stout, good golf courses. And, and, and Thomas, as I mentioned before, I just, it's a shame he didn't do more golf courses because that guy was a genius. I mean, he was really freaking brilliant. <laughs> it's amazing. The Philadelphia school of architecture, you know, Thomas and Tillinghast came from that and how, they have shaped championship golf in America. Like if you look down George Thomas's courses, like, you know, some of the best championship court and then Tillinghast, I mean, resume, William Flynn resume. It's, and I mean, you've spent a ton of time in Philadelphia. It's gotta be, you know. Yeah. It's exciting. Cause I mean, you know, I grew up in New, in New York, but we've lived in Philadelphia for longer than, I mean, we've been there for 25 years. So that's been home. All three kids have been raised there. We feel like we're Philadelphians. And so we're proud of that. But it, the interesting thing is you look any, you throw a stone anywhere in Philadelphia, you're going to hit a really good golf course. I mean, like the seventh or eighth best golf course in Philadelphia would be one of the top golf courses in almost any other city in the country. And you know, while New York, the Met area claims, you know, probably the best from a rankings, man, they throw a very wide blanket over a big area. You've got Long Island, Westchester, New Jersey, Connecticut. But Philly, you know, it, we've got a ton of good courses, and I think a lot of that is a testament to the guys that you talked about. I mean, they, they were locals. They practiced in that area. I mean, William Flynn has got six or seven phenomenal golf courses in and around Philadelphia. You know, Tilling has a few. Um Obviously, George Crump and and you Wilson to you know, one hit wonders, but man, how good are, you know, how good are those two courses? You talked about collaboration too, and those are two of the biggest collaborations. And I mean, Pine Valley was all those guys bouncing ideas off of it with Crump, 
deciding which ones he liked. Yeah, it's you know you ultimately need to have that final editor. I mean, the arbiter of who's going to say, okay, this is what's going to hit the ground. And you know, Crump was obviously brilliant at that. He had the respect of his friends who came out to help him, and then he had the respect of the professionals who came because they realized they looked at Pine Valley and realized the brilliance of what he was building and, and the, the opportunity that that canvas presented. So they all wanted to chime in and, and be part of it. So when you have a, a circle of friends that are really astute at it, and then you can also bring in, you know, the Travis's and the Ross's and Colt, et cetera, that's a pretty good lineup to draw from. And he, you know, he was great at figuring out what made the most sense. Do you feel, I'll say you said George Thomas might be a little underappreciated, but any other architect that stands out is like most underappreciated by the general public? Hmm. You know, boy, that's a good, I mean, probably William Flynn. I mean, he did such a great amount of work in and around our area, so he's really well known in Philadelphia. But, you know, outside of that, obviously, Shinnecock, he'll get a lot of exposure this year. Um, Cherry Hills, et cetera. But I think he was, he was really good. And, you know, some people might be surprised that I didn't put Ross on my Mount Rushmore, especially since we're sitting in his house. So I might get a visitation tonight from, from Donald. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that his golf courses that he spent time on were, are brilliant. I mean, course number two, Seminole, Aronimink, the ones that you can, you know, Vernessa, I mean, he's got a ton of great, great golf courses, but there's, I always look at him as is always solid, seldom brilliant. You know that, and that I think is is that sort of workload that you know you can't physically be, especially in his day and age. You just couldn't. I don't know how four hundred or five hundred plus courses, whatever the number is, how how you could spend any a, a ton of time on them. But he was g- so good at just figuring out the best way to route a golf course on the property that that's why they're always. I've never seen a real, a bad Donald Ross golf course, but I think if you look at the sort of stacking, if you compare the best of McKenzie to the best of Ross, the best of Tillinghast to the best of Ross, I think that that's, that's where you probably start to see that those guys maybe were because they limited the amount of work that they took on and they spent more time on their projects being, uh, you know, probably being a little bit above and, and not why Ross doesn't make my rush more. You spoke about workload. So one of the things I find absolutely fascinating about your profession is that you go from a young architect that's struggling to find work, trying to get jobs, scraping for jobs, and then there's always a moment that all of a sudden then you become a popular name, and then you almost have too much work. How hard is that moment to deal with? So I, I'll, I'll never forget. It was um, now I'm going to forget the date. It was the the Open Championship at Royal Lytham. I want to say it was either '88 or '89. I think it was '88. It was the first time I ever met Ben Crenshaw, and he was just getting going with Bill Core. And he was discussing that he felt like the most difficult thing about becoming a golf course architect was staying small. He said that's always that's the hardest part because in this in this business at that time I. I was just in college. I had no idea what this business was. He says, you've got to say yes to like four or five things in order for one or two of them to come true. And he said, what happens if all five of them come through 
or what happens if none of them come through. So it's learning how to balance that sort of understanding of what's potentially a real project versus what's probably likely not going to happen and, and how you come to terms with that. So I think, you know, people have asked me about that sort of ascent that we've had in, you know, sort of a 20 year overnight sensation. I mean, Jim and I have worked really hard over a long period of time. And I think within the golfing circles, people knew who we were and people understood that we did quality work and we may not be getting the sort of marquee jobs, et cetera, but that every job we did, there was a level of quality attached to that, that showed that we, we knew what we were doing. And I think, you know, Boston golf club has probably been the most important project to us um, ever because we had two great owners who gave us a really good piece of land to work with. It's, you know, I don't know the rankings. It's our, is it our highest ranked course? Maybe, I don't know, maybe not in some other rankings, but it put us in a place where we could be, <clears throat> you know, we, we spent time with Brad Faxon. We spent time with Seth Waugh from Deutsche Bank. We started to sort of rub shoulders with people who were decision makers in in the game and got to know some people who, and so Boston Golf Club was well-received and recognized, and then that got us TPC Boston. And then the renovation of TPC Boston, working with Brad and actually getting one of our golf courses on TV, and that was well-received. And then that was a stepping stone to Castle Stewart. And then Castle Stewart was, you know, our second golf course in Scotland, and, you know, then it became a tournament course and on and on and on and blah, 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 till we got to the point where we got the Olympic course, and then that was when sort of everything broke open. But it was a slow and steady climb. It wasn't uh, a meteoric rise. It wasn't like we were given, you know, the opportunity to build a a top two golf course or five golf course in the world with our second or third project that just didn't happen. But it was, I think a testament more to, to our belief system, our belief in just kind of keeping our heads down and trying to do good work. And eventually somebody would notice. And then, you know, with the Olympic course, people noticed in a big way. And then that was right around the same time we got Doral. And obviously there was a gentleman involved there who was not shy about promoting things. So we were, you know, so we heard an awful, we, we all of a sudden just turned into this uh, sort of bigger name than, although that my kids always give me a hard time. They, and my wife, Tracy, they, they make sure I stay in line. They, they always, when we went to the, uh, pitch for the Olympic course when we did our full presentation. We had little name tags in front of us. And so Amy Alcott was helping us and Owen Larkin was our environmental consultant. And we get up to give our talk and look down and they've got the name cards in front of us. And and mine says Gil Hansen. And then it's underneath it it says Hans Golf Design. And I'm like, oh my God, they don't even know who my, what my name is. And I'm here, you know, going up against Jack Nicholas and Tom Doak and Greg Norman and all these top guys and they don't spell my name right. So I didn't say anything because I was afraid somebody might get fired or somebody get yelled at. But after we gave our presentation, I just quietly slipped that piece of paper out and stuck it in my notebook. And so my kids, Chelsea, Tyler, and Kaylee, and, and Tracy had it framed, and it's hanging in my office. And they said, if you ever, your head ever gets too big, remember, they didn't even know what your name was when you when you went up for the biggest job of your life. I heard that uh, you almost didn't even get there. Yeah, that was another story that uh, with the passport thing. And uh, yeah, I lost my passport. I went, we did all this work, and I'm... Uh, 
getting ready to leave and, and I've got a flight on, uh, I don't know, whatever it was. The presentation was on Tuesday morning and I was flying on Sunday night and I couldn't find my passport, turn everything upside down. <clears throat> I'm like in the fetal position, crying in the office thinking this is just, there's, this can't really be happening. And so Tracy is, as you know, women do goes into problem solving mode right away. And before I know it, she's got an expediter for a passport on the phone saying, well, you need to get to New York first thing in the morning. Long story short, I go to New York Monday morning. I cancel my flight. I get to uh, get my passport by 10 a.m. My assistant, Andrea Lynch, is in the line at the Brazilian consulate trying to get so I can run uptown, get in line, get a visa because you need a visa to go to Brazil. That gets done. So now it's like 1 o'clock. Now my hands, my fate's in the hands of American Airlines. So I get literally land, get there, at 11.30 for a 1 o'clock presentation, have a Coke and choke down a sandwich and go in to do the presentation. And, I mean, it turned out to be the best thing ever because I had no time to be nervous or I could barely even think about what the presentation was. Just getting there was the, the biggest accomplishment. And so I was kind of relaxed, honestly, when it finally came time to do it. And I thought that the three of us, you know, did as, as good as we could. It's one of those things where you walk out and you go, listen, I could, we couldn't have done any better. So, you know, you don't, well, we weren't kicking ourselves going, oh, we forgot to say that or we forgot to do this. It was like, hey, that's as good as we can do. If that's good enough, then great. If it's not, well, we, we gave it our best shot. But it was, yeah, it was a harrowing experience. And then come to find out I'd been in Korea uh, at the end of, in December, and I had this really nice overcoat that I never wore. You know, maybe I'd go out to dinner once or twice, and but I took it to Korea for these meetings because it was cold. My passport was in the pocket. So a year and a half later, it's Christmas time and we're going out to dinner and I put this jacket on. I haven't worn it in that period of time. I reached in the pocket and I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> there it was. I lose stuff all the time like that. It's, it's awful. Yeah. And then I find it. And it's, uh, what uh, Working for the IOC and in Brazil, how is that, how is that different than working for a, country club membership versus like a resort. Yeah. You know, it was an interesting process that, um, when the eight of us competed for it, I think we were all under the standing understanding that we would be working for, um, see, I thought the IOC was also in charge of that, but basically the IOC just, they pick the city and then they show up during the Olympics. Every, each sports uh, governing body is responsible for the playing field of that sport. So now the Olympic organizing committee, the host city, Rio, they're the ones who have to build the stadiums, but basically FIFA approves the soccer field. FIBA approves the basketball stadium. The I, IGF, the International Golf Federation, which is the ruling body of golf in the Olympics, they would approve the golf course. So we thought, all right, we're working for the IGF and they're technical arm was the PGA tour design services guys that I know very well who are great at what they do and very competent. And then the Rio organizing committee. Well, it turns out that we actually wound up, it was the only public private partnership of the Olympic venues. Um, so there was a landowner who had the land. So we wound up working for them. They knew nothing about golf really could care less about, the golf course, it was sort of a development strategy for them. And so it got to the point where, you know, it's been well chronicled. We basically spent nine months to close to a year spinning our wheels down there, literally getting trucks stuck and not having the appropriate 
um, equipment and it just wasn't going well. And then finally, I think the Rio organizing committee got the word from the IOC. Listen, you're in jeopardy of losing the entire games. And, uh, from that moment forward, I think some pressure was applied to the developer and all of a sudden we had the resources, we had everything in place and it became like a normal golf course project and we knocked it out in you know, another six or seven months. So, um, you know, the guys who were down there, Neil Cameron, Ben Hillard, Kyle Franz, uh, and Ben Warren, Ben Warren came later on. So those other three guys were there from day one and just, I mean, I can never thank them enough for the the work that they did and all the highs and lows that they went through. It was an amazing, amazing project. And, uh, you know, there were times where it was really like we were going to pull, we just, how can we keep going? But every, we all did. We all just kind of kept pushing in the right direction. We all had a commitment to to building the best possible golf course that we could and trying to do the best we could for the game you know, to give a a credible venue for golf coming back into the Olympics. And so we kind of felt like there was a, and I'm not trying to be sanctimonious or, you know, get pats on the back. We just felt like there was a higher purpose to do this. And we, we just toughed it out. And so, like I said, those three guys in particular, and, um, you know, it's, it, it was, it was, it was a tough one to get done, but at the end of the day, we're extremely proud of what we built and we're really, really happy with the way that the the tournaments turned out the other aspect of that is that it's the first public golf course and you know there's very few public golf courses in south america it has a ability to shape golf design in an area that public doesn't really get to see versus you know you look at the well chronicled troubles of some designs in southeast asia where like they got off and when they started getting into golf was at a, a what I would consider a dark period of golf design. And sure enough, those golf, a lot of those golf courses over there mimic that. Yeah. It's, and one of the nice things about it, and is, I can't tell you, Andy, how many times people come up to me and go, Oh, I'm sorry to hear about the Olympic course that it's closed or, Oh, it's, you know, it fell apart. I'm like, no, it's not. It's actually, I mean, Kyle Franz was down there. Ben Hillard was down there over the winter. They all played the golf course. They said it was playing great that it's maintained well, that they're, you know, slowly but surely figuring out how to manage the golf operation. I mean, the maintenance has been terrific, but how do you run a pro shop? How do you set up programs? There was a time Kyle was telling me that he played golf down there recently and there was a junior clinic going on and there were tons of kids running around and playing. So it's, it's been a, actually a, a pretty significant success story down there. It's, I think it's the only Olympic venue still operating and still functional. And that just kind of gets lost in in the shuffle. And well, okay, we've moved on from Rio, but you're right. I, I'm we've always felt that if the legacy of that golf course is not so much about you know who won the medals or or that competition, but it's about hey, the, actually, you know what? The game of golf grew from Brazil. There, there's maybe a player 20 years from now or 10 years from now whose first introduction of the game came from there, and and hopefully that public aspect and getting people to play golf in, in Brazil will be a, a better story and a, and a better legacy for that golf course. But I'm, I'm happy to say that the, the reports of its demise have been greatly exaggerated and, and the course is really, really moving along nicely. What have been uh, some of the growing pains associated with becoming small to trying to stay small? Um, 
you know, we, we still are small. I mean, we, we still, somebody was asking me the other day how we operate and we all still operate out of our homes. I mean, we have an office in Paoli, Pennsylvania, where, uh, Marianne Piccioni runs sort of the day-to-day operations of, um, Hans golf course design. And I'm embarrassed, but also slightly proud to say I've never stepped foot in that, in that office because <laughs> when I'm home, I want to be home and I've got a very nice office in the house with everything that, that I need there. And she comes over to the house if we've got to go through some things. And Jim Wagner works out of his home in, in West Palm beach and Kevin Murphy works out of his apartment in Astoria, Queens and Ben Hillard works out of his apartment in Sunnyside, Queens. So, I mean, we're still a very small firm. And, and, you know, we have, like I said, there's five of us in it and, you know, we, we all just pitch in and do what we can. And, and that's something that I don't think will ever change. At least I don't ever want it to. Um, and that may be a turnoff to some people. And it certainly was, you know, as part of the growing pains of, you know, how, how big a staff do you have? How professional an appearance do you want to have? You know, I, if somebody wanted to come to our office, I was like, Oh, well, uh, maybe we should go, let's go meet at Applebrook. It's a course we designed. It's five minutes from our house and, uh, we can have a meeting there as opposed to, you know, well, we don't really have an office or, um, do you want to come to my house? Um, so that's been, it's been part of, I think part of the success. I mean, Jim and I talk an awful lot about how it's a very relaxed, it's a, it's a very fluid thing. It's sort of, we talk once a week if we don't see each other and, and, you know, we're like ships passing in a night. If there's two projects on the go, he's at one and I'm, you know, we just kind of bump into each other occasionally, but that's been the chemistry for 25 years that's worked for us. And so we're not ever trying to impose, we don't do AutoCAD. Uh, you know, I didn't learn, I was, I was, I'm too old for that. And you know, they weren't teaching at a Cornell when I was there, Ben and Kevin know how to do it. But it's just not a service. If, we, if a client feels that's important, then we, you know, we ask, we get an engineer to do it. So I think we recognize what we're not and we're honest about it. And we basically say, listen, we're just a bunch of guys that like to go out and run bulldozers and, and create and, and work in the dirt. And if we're not polished, we're not, you know, we don't have a lot of fancy brochures and office space, et cetera, but we're honest in what we produce. And, and that's ultimately what we try to do. So, um, I'd, you know, that's been philosophy from day one and we've been fortunate. You know, I had another golf course architect who's a friend who says, you know, you've part of what's great about this is that you've been able to do it on your terms. And, you know, that's, it, I never thought of it that way, but it is kind of cool that we've been able to just build this thing slowly over a period of time and not have to change who we are. And I think that, that was, you know, one of the overriding things that Jim and I talked about as we got our presentation ready for for Rio is let's not change who we are. Let's, you know, whatever level of success we've achieved that's allowed us to be part of this competition, that's what we've got to focus on. We can't just try and all of a sudden change and do bells and whistles and do something different. And if it's not good enough, if what we believe isn't good enough, then we shouldn't build the golf course. We shouldn't try to compromise or just curry favor it's like let's just go in say this is who we are this is how we work and and hopefully you'll like what we have to say and i thought it was it was an interesting opportunity for us to kind of get on a stage where we could say this is what we believe golf architecture is and and 
you know, it's, it's thoughtful. It's hopefully asks a lot of, uh, Mike Clayton, who's a great friend, who's a fantastic golf course architect. He always talks about golf courses that ask tough questions, but the answers are simple, you know, and, and that I think is a great way to describe what we believe in golf. Uh, and, and we're not the only ones who think that way, but that's been part of the, that presentation and, and, you know, what we've tried to do over these 25 years of, of building golf courses. So, you know, you, you juggle your time, you know, you, you, as you get busier and, and as you, you, there are so many more demands on your time and you just have to be as, as gracious as you can in saying no, but you have to learn how to say no. And that's a difficult thing. At least it is for me. And and I think for Jim as well, but you, so I think that's probably the biggest growing pain is is figuring out how to manage the the requests for your time and and your you need to sort of make sure you stay focused on what ultimately is the most important thing. Yeah, most most architects they as they get bigger they do less and less of the the shaping work, but you know you still do considerable work on every project. Is you think that's the core of of your design? Yeah, I think it's the core of what we enjoy about what we do. Um, I'll I'll often say in you know, board meetings or, or committee meetings at clubs uh, or with owners, I'll say, listen, we, I come to these meetings in order to support my bulldozer habit. And that's really what, what I think about it is, you know, you have to do these things and I don't mind doing them. I understand it's part of what we do in order to get to the point where you can actually be on in the field and be on a machine. And you know, as long as my back holds up and my health is good, I want to continue doing this as long as I can. And and Jim and I have said, you know, if if we get to a point where we can't get on the machinery because we're pulled in too many directions, then we've lost the battle. Then we've we've sold out. You know, we've gotten to the point where we've valued other things above the work. And, you know, we built a hoopy match club and I was on site for 90 plus days. I'm going to be on site here at, at Pinehurst on the course number four for close to 50, 55 days. And same at stream song black was, you know, 70, 80 days. So, I mean, we're, we're still putting the time in on our projects and, you know, so we, we haven't lost the code as our good friend, Mark Parson, and who was co-designer at, at Castle Stewart. He, he would always say, we can't lose the code. We can't lose the code. And so we, I don't think we've lost the code yet. Why do golf course architects never retire? Hopefully because they love what we, they do. I mean, I, I I was talking to Tracy when I was over in Thailand, and I said, you know, this is the most difficult site we've ever been on, but I can't help but be excited about it. It's like a, I, I love what I do. I, I, I can't think of wanting to do anything else. And people ask me, and it's probably a sad commentary on my life, but – you know, aside from my family, which is obviously the most important thing to me, you know, it's like, well, what else do you do? What do you do for hobbies? And I'm like, well, I play golf. Well, yeah. Well, what else? I, I work. I really like working. I mean, I, my work is fun. It's something that, you know, I look forward to every day when I get up, it's like, all right, what can we do today? You know, we were talking yesterday out on uh, course number four about sort of a bunker sequence on a fairway. And I came, I was sitting up last night thinking about it. And I was like, oh, I got an idea. And then first thing in the morning, Ben and Seamus and I are out there with Brent and we're walking around. We're like, well, what about this? Here's this. I was thinking about this last night. Oh yeah, great. And then 
well, what if we twist? And all of a sudden there's just this, the juices are flowing and, you know, we're barely one cup of coffee into the day. And it's just, that's what you live for. That's what you live to do. And so I, I hope other golf course architects feel the same way that I do. And I think that that's probably why, why they rarely retire. You've been listening to the fried egg podcast. We do the digging for you. 